notification. I choose to blame whoever's not here because that makes it less awkward. <laughs> Until they show up. So, okay. Yesterday, yesterday the topic was that the idea that Judaism expects to be taken or expects the standard that to be judged as the one true religion needs some explaining. And the reason for that is that you can't have the standard be one thing for Judaism and then something else for everything else. And so the standard, in, the standard that Judaism holds itself to is that you need direct, uh, as an individual basis, you need a direct first-person experience. Um, but on a communal level, if you have institutions that are set up and designed for housing and preserving the truth, then those tr- institutions um, can serve as a way to transmit um, first-person w- experience, which in our case would be the, the revelation of Mount Sinai to the whole Jewish people, generation after generation. So the idea is not that you have one person telling another person and then that other person is supposed to take it because they trust that individual person and not even a group of people telling another group of people in a casual manner, but there has to be some kind of standards of institutions that are set up. Now, the specifics of how those institutions work are very fascinating if anyone is interested. Um, There's a lot of learning one can do. And the Talmud has a few tractates devoted to this. Um, Tractates of Talmud don't really work in kind of organized ways, but they touch on this at least. Um, there's a tractate called Sanhedrin which deals with courts and its proceedings um, and also fundamental principles of Jewish theology. You also have the tractate of Horus which deals with what happens when the institutions make mistakes, how they're supposed to correct themselves, how they're supposed to um, check for those things. Okay. What I want to do today is shift focus by pointing out a problem with everything that I said yesterday, which is that it is by definition impersonal. Right? The power of an institution is that it erases the, the individual experience of one person. Okay. Um, has anyone ever heard the expression, the rule of law? Okay. What is the opposing concept? Rule of law as opposed to what? Anyone know? What? The rule of law it was a concept that was contrasted against the concept called the rule of men. Although, to be fair, there was occasionally the rule of a woman, but usually the rule of men. What? That's a different concept. <laughs> and a rather disturbing one at that. No, so the idea of the rule of law is that there's a law. The law is a, basically takes the form of if this is the situation, then this is what should or should not be done. And that, that can deal with interpersonal disputes about you know, neighbors and fences. It can deal with procedures of running a government, what a leader can and cannot do, um, what, things, what, what decisions by person in power are binding, aren't binding, are reversible, not reversible. But the idea is that the law depends on the case, or the rule, what should or shouldn't happen depends on the case. It doesn't matter who it is. 
Okay? Um, and once those laws are in place, they govern everybody. That's a concept called rule of law. Rule by men or rule of men means that there is someone who has the authority and they can make up whatever rules they want. And when they change the rules, those are the rules. And what constrains or limits their, their ability to change the rules? Nothing. Okay. So, if you have an absolute monarchy, in your classic absolute monarchy, we have a, you know, like, Tsarist Russia, what's the law? Well, there is no really such thing as the law because whatever the law was yesterday, if the king wakes up with a different thing in his mind, then all of a sudden... Right, and so the idea that there is, a, there is a thing that's kind of fixed that you can refer back to isn't really true because the king just says, well, you know, I don't care about that anymore. We're not going to work with We're not going to abide by that. That's no longer the case. Okay. Um, in most modern countries, there's an idea that we shouldn't have that. That's bad. Okay. Um, and that's what creates institutions. And the idea is that if, if you have them set up properly that the rule the, the, that this rule of law is followed you don't really have to so much trust the individual person let's make this a little more concrete when you go to get your driver's license the person who's working um, at the DMV um, or wherever depending on whatever country you're in whatever it's called if you live in a somewhat normal country do you have to worry that perhaps that person doesn't like you and therefore you won't get your driver's license If is there sort of storm, even in Israel, you don't have to worry about that. It really depends if you come half an hour before lunch. You're very unlikely to pass. So, so yes, there are things where there are things where the laws are slightly. But I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, much more, much more bluntly. If you have all your paperwork in order, and you can drive, and you can drive. And you pass your driver's test and you just want to get the, the, this thing. The person who's there, they don't have much choice. Okay? The system is set up that it's not their personal little fiefdom. Yes, there are small things on the margins. They can make your life a little bit miserable. They can make you wait. But at the end of the day, okay. now there are countries, and historically this has always been the case, that that person, you know, the local person in charge of whatever particular stamping, whatever document you happen to need, had absolute control to do whatever they want. And unless you could, you were good friends with a person who was above them, they, if they wanted to hold your document that you were entitled to for a bribe, they didn't want to give it to you. Tough luck. Unless you have better connection, interpersonal connections than they do, you're really, you're really stuck. Okay. Now. When I put it that way, which system sounds better? A system where there's rule of law, where, where institutions are hopefully set up in a functional way that if these are the facts, this is what has to happen, and people do that, and people's individual feelings about other people don't really matter, or you get what you get based on who likes you, who's your friend, who trusts you. Which situation, which, which is a better system? The former. Okay. They're both impersonal. Why are they both impersonal? Because, like, you're not having... That individual isn't really having... Like, it's... In the rule of man, it's... He's having all the control. So the, the person himself isn't really affecting that. Well, unless you're good friends with the person in charge. And that's kind of how things happen. Bring him a cookie and you get your document. Well, so, so you, can, huh. you, can, you can bribe, but the real way this works is this is why people would put into positions of power the people they liked and... 
this is why um, family relations become very important. And in other words, it, it, it you know, it, it very much depends on, there's, in, in that kind of system, there's no line between professionalism and, and personal relations. Like if you're not getting along with them, there's no such thing as having a professional relationship. You just, whoever's in power, they have the power. And so if you want, if you want things, you want things to work for you, you want to you know, be friendly with the people who are more powerful than you, you want to be related to them if you could. It's a whole different kind of society. But in a broad society, like in a large society, it's the same level of probably... It does make running a large society very hard. There's no, like, there's no really effective large societies that have ever been worked this way. You know, when you have massive amounts of people, you can't do this. Okay. Now, in terms of running governments, that's an interesting question, which is better. But now if we move to religion, there is a problem if the integrity of the religion is based on institutions, because the power of institutions, what gives them their integrity is the fact that they're impersonal, but then that makes the religion as a whole impersonal. Okay? It makes it basically that religion becomes just another kind of a, um, a, a, a legal structure you have to follow. You do this then, you do that then. Um, now you keep Shabbos, this food you can eat, this food you can't eat, you, made the, you did this sin, go to the temple, offer this sacrifice, you know, put this amount of money in this box. In other words, the religion becomes something that, is, that, is, that, that one can practice without any personal attachment. Because the whole structure is basically one of an institution of people who are knowledgeable about the procedures and rules for how to govern things according to the God-given structure, and then if, as long as you're playing your part in the way that works, then, then everyone's happy. Um, and we've seen that historically Judaism has struggled with this. Where is the first place we see that Judaism has a problem with this, this kind of institutionalization of religion? Is the prophets. One of the themes that you find in the prophets, specifically the later prophets, is this constant um, rebuke to the Jewish people that you can't just follow the rules of the Torah and expect God to be happy that you have to actually embody the values, you have to have a personal relationship with God, you have to actually care about God. You can't, um, you can't just clock in and clock out and do your job, but you leave your heart and soul out of it. And this has always been an issue, is that Judaism, because, it's so, because the integrity of Judaism is so heavily focused on the institutions, and the institutions are impersonal, that you can have, and this still exists to this day, you, the idea of being a religious Jew does not mean a person is in any way devout or spiritual or God-focused. It simply means that there are patterns of behavior governed by institutions that this person lives their life according to. And what they, inside they feel and believe and want and yearn for can really be left out of it. So you have this, this, this and you can almost think of it as a trade-off, which is, that if I make connection with God very personal, then I'm kind of left to my own, okay? And unless you're walking around claiming that you've had a direct prophecy, that's a, that's a very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Chaotic approach to, to, to religion. You know, if, if religion is just meant to do something that gives you a, a spiritual high, then it doesn't matter. But if there's an idea, there's an integrity, there's actually uh, a God who actually does have a particular care of things be this way versus that way and you want to make it personal and you're not a prophet, you kind of are out of a problem. But then institutions with all of their power to preserve integrity over generations, they're impersonal and so you lose that connection as well. 
This is an issue that Judaism has traditionally struggled with. Um, and I'm going to present one approach to how this is dealt with. Why am I presenting one approach? Two reasons. One, it's the only approach that I know that works. What's the other reason? Why would I need another reason? What? This is the only. How do you deal with this problem that the integrity of Judaism is all in these institutions was very impersonal, and religion should be something that actually touches the heart, the soul, the mind of a person. That you can't help us develop that. You can't force us to have a personal. Right, but why am I? Why am I going to present only one way of dealing with this? So one answer is because there's only one way I know if that works. There is only one way. What? And the other way, right, so, 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 the, the, so one is there's only one way that, that I know if that works. The other is that it would be disingenuous, and I think this is a very important thing to discuss, for someone to teach something um, that they don't personally aspire to, going back to yesterday, our discussion about hypocrisy. In other words, if I were to give you a class and I would tell you, well, there's this approach, there's this approach, there's this approach, but I personally, in my own life, don't actually think that those are worth pursuing. then what am I doing? Being hypocritical. I would argue that that's being hypocritical. Okay. Now I'll explain to you, and I'll explain to you, in other words, what that means is that I'm saying that I, that, that, that if, to my mind, there's, there's only one thing that works. And, but I don't convey that to you, then I'm sort of keeping that, okay, what, what the, the idea that, that Judaism should be treated seriously and actually matters, which is something that I think is true for me, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to convey that to you. Now this is different, I want to put this is different than trying to convince you that this is correct. What's the difference? Because to try and convince you this is correct means that I'm setting out my goal as you should agree with me. Okay, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you think things are different, okay? So, what I, think is, what I think is a genuine thing to do is to present what I believe to be true and works of the belief that I think this will work for people. I don't see anything else that will work for people, but with the realization that I'm not other people and so I can't take upon myself you know, the, the, the responsibility to impose that on other people. So the two things that I don't want this to come across is number one, that, oh, there's a variety of options. It's a smorgasbord. Pick whichever one works for you because... In my experience, in my, to the way I understand things, that I don't think that that is true. And I think that would be misleading people. It's setting them to what I would understand to be a, something false and setting them up for difficulty and failure unnecessarily. But on the other hand, because everybody is their own person, for me to set up that I have to convince you that this is right and get into some kind of an, uh, an argument or debate to prove it, I think is also misses the point. So what I want to do is present this because to my mind, this is the only way that works. But your Agreeing with me or not agreeing with me will have to come, you know, based on your own exploration. So the way I like to think of this is that if you ask someone for directions and they know that there's only one way to get to where you want to go, they don't say, well, some people say you go left and some people say you go right. Well, knowing full well that if you go left, you're never going to get there. And they say you go right. But now they're not going to get into an argument with you that it's right. Like if, if you say, well, maybe it's left. Like, okay, if you want to try left, try left. I'm not going to like, it's up to you. But if you're asking me, to my mind, to my understanding, the way to go is right. How are you so sure? Um, I will get to that as we go through. Okay. So, one of the ideas that 
um, was emphasized by the Hasidic movement. It's implicit in works and, th- and, and ideas bef- and things in Judaism before the Hasidic movement. But one of these that was emphasized was that Jewish people have another kind of m- method of knowing. So we spoke last week about four traditional kinds of ways of knowing. We know things through rational introspection. We think about things. We know about things by experiencing the world through our senses. Um, we know about things because we believe what someone else told us. We know about things through culture knowledge. Then we added a fifth, which is not th- that everyone doesn't have, which is prophecy, revelation. So there is an idea that there is a sixth. And to preface, if you recall, when we spoke about empirical knowledge, experiencing the world through our senses, I listed the senses. What were they? What are the senses? Five senses. Five senses. What are they? Touch. Touch. Sight, taste, and hearing. Hearing. Are there other physical senses that we have? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. What are some of the other physical senses? Balance where your body is in space. Ba- balance whether you're upside down, right side up. Where your body, where your body is, where your different limbs are. Any other ones? Temperature. Internal temperature or external temperature? Like the temperature of things outside. Like when you touch something, you know it's hot. That goes back to touch. Right. Okay. What? It is. It is. That's in. I would. Okay. I don't want. I don't want to debate whether that goes into into touch. I could see why you might think it doesn't, but I think it does. But. It's intuition. How about mood? How about your sense of time? Are these senses? Like you can feel, you, you've ever felt tense? Yeah. You've felt relaxed? So, um, <laughs> senses like a sense of time, a sense of balance, a sense of where your body is in space. These things, the reason why I excluded them earlier was because these are not really things that tell you about the world. These are ways you sense your, right? They're, in, they're giving you an awareness of what's going on internally rather than what's going on externally. Right? And that's why I excluded them. Okay. So the reason why I'm bringing them back up is just like we have internal and external physical sensation, right? So I see objects outside of me, I hear things happening outside of me, but I can also feel um, everything from, from mood to balance, what's going on you know, internally, um, what's going on with my body. In a similar sense, there is an internal sense that um, a Jew has. Now, This internal sense, I'm going to talk about it for a while, and only later am I going to name it. And the reason is because I want people to understand it without being biased by what it's called. Okay? We'll preface with the following. There's a Hebrew word, emes. Is anyone familiar with this Hebrew word, emes? Yeah. Okay, does anyone know how to translate it? Truth. Truth. And can you define truth as a translation of the Hebrew word emes? No. Is it truth or God? Is it truth? God. Like as defined from So like whatever Hashem says is true is true and that's that? You can't deny it? I feel like God gives truth. I feel like I've heard that 
There is a concept of... So... Is it faith? Is what? Truth is faith? Uh, and what well, I just, what is What does it mean that something is... What is truth? What, what does it mean something is true? This is true, that is true. What does that mean? It's factual. It's factual. So, um, I'm in this room is true. I'm in Disneyland is not factual, so it's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, true is just a way of saying that the world is actually this way. Okay. That is how the word, that is a way, way that the word true is used in English. Um, it's the way philosophers use it a lot. This is not really the meaning of the word emes. The meaning of the word emes is, is something which cannot be otherwise. And the reason why it cannot be other, otherwise is because it, it's intrinsic. It doesn't depend on things outside of itself. So for instance, in human experience, you wouldn't say that I'm in this room is true because I could just as easily leave the room. Okay? Um, something that most people think would be true in our subjective experience would be true is that life is valuable. Life matters. In other words, that... I'm alive, and, and that means something. That has some kind of significance. Okay? And even when people are very, very um, um, distressed with their life, they don't like their life, um, they're having a negative reaction to the fact that their life is not as it should be, meaning that life carries with it a value as something that people's minds can't seem to get out of. So at least within the subjective experience of a person, if you limit it to within the realm of a person's experience, no matter what's going on, somewhere in their mind, in some way, life is a valuable thing that needs to be taken under consideration. Um, life ought to look in a certain way. Life ought to be in a certain way. And then the question is, people will differ as to what that is and how to deal with that. The kind of, that's a kind of thing which we could say, at least for a person, is a true thing because it is always the case and is intrinsic to the person. It can't be otherwise. Okay? In fact... Many Jewish philosophers go so far as to say is nothing in the physical world really could be considered to be true because if you think about it, anything in the physical world can change. Can change. So it, the way it is, it's, there's nothing intrinsic about it. It doesn't have to be that way. Okay? Whereas you would say God, God is true. Why? Because God is who he is, not because of other things that made him be that way. And therefore he is true. Now, the way you can test for that and that is you look for inconsistency. If something is inconsistent, well, that's a sign it's not true or it's more in, involved and intricate than you understand. Right? Because if something, is, if something is inconsistent, that shows that, that, it, that, that what you're seeing is not really a, an expression of it, what it is intrinsically. What you're seeing is the influence of other things that come and go. So, for instance, a person cannot be truly just a person can't be truly described as a happy person. Why not? Because they could be unhappy. So we see the fact that they're not consistently happy shows that the happiness is not a true expression of them. That makes sense. Okay. Ah, so now here's where you get into nuance. Is that that is actually not what I said is not really true because what you could say is that that when you see the person as happy you're seeing the person as they truly are. When you're seeing the person is not happy, it's not that the person is not happy. It's that you're not seeing the happiness. The happiness is kind of locked away. In other words, no one would say that if you take, for instance, a red pen and you put it in your pocket, now you can't see the red pen that, because you can't see the redness of the pen and stop being red. So if you make a person a more complex being and say, okay, well, maybe what I experience 
is changing, but the, or where, sorry, how I'm experiencing changing, but what's underneath that is actually not changing. Okay, um, I'll give you just an example. Most of us have this 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 mindset. Let's see your hand. Just one second. Most of us have this mindset where we tend to think as follows. If we're really tired, really hungry, really out of it, and we behave in a, what we would consider to be an Im- inappropriate or immoral manner, do we think that that reflects who we really are? No. no. Why not? Why not? There are but, external but, factors. Oh, those are external factors. Like, there's other things. Like, like there's, there's who we really are, that, like, intrinsically, which we're a good person. And then this, this was some, you know, someone threw paint on the, on, on the beautiful vase, and that's why it looks ugly. But, but if you wash off the paint, you would see that it's beautiful underneath, right? Yeah. Okay. And then if you push people, yeah, just one second. If you push people, often, not always, Explanation is, well, what makes you think that is they'll say, well, because, you know, it, you know, it's only because when you're tired or when you're hungry, you didn't really think about it. It was in the moment. Had you thought about it, you wouldn't have done it that way. So the implication being that it's your more thought out self, the more introspective, reflective self, that's who you truly are. But this isn't really the case because if you reverse it and you say, like, you're normally, you know, pretty self-centered and then... All, you know, in, in an emergency, you, you rise to the occasion, you do something very courageous and brave, even at the point of self-sacrifice, right? People look at you and you look at yourself like, wow, I didn't know I had this deeper good part of me. And like somehow that's the good part of you. And that part is a truer part of you. In other words, people have this tendency to think that the good that comes out of them re- reflects a true self. And the negativity is somehow something that is being superimposed. And so... If a person's negativity comes when they're tired, hungry, etc., say, okay, well, this isn't tired, hungry. But if a person's um, courage, bravery, empathy surprises them, they don't blow that off usually and say, okay, well, that wasn't really me. They say, oh, there's more to me than I ever knew. There's a deeper self I wasn't aware of. In other words, we have this bias, and I'm just describing, I'm not making any judgments about it, that there is, an, uh, there is a who we intrinsically are, which is presupposed to be good, and the fact that we sometimes experience it and sometimes don't, that it's inconsistent, is not a reflection of it not being true, but a reflection of other things having the ability to block it, cover it over. Okay. Yes? I feel like in some ways it's the opposite of that. In that um, I've heard a lot of people say, like, oh, when you're drunk, that's your, like, that's your real self. But like, if you want to really know a person, like, like see what they, like, how they behave when they're drunk, which is a really interesting and opposite thing and like certainly not everyone believes that but I know people who have like said things drunk and then like the next day will say like oh my god I can't believe I said that when I'm drunk now I can't even explain that away because everyone will know that that's like what I really think so one of the things that Chassidus does is Chassidus says that well this idea is true it's too simplistic because it implies it's just like two levels um, and there have to be actually more and more layers like an onion so just to directly respond to the thing about being drunk mm-hmm. is that drinking alcohol specifically removes a person's inhibitions. So those things which are at a level of yourself that you desire to express but you inhibit will come out when you're drunk. Mm-hmm. Now, is that more authentic than when you normally reveal? I guess that depends on how you trace back where, the, where those instincts are coming from and what's causing those inhibitions. So for instance, if I really dislike you on some, you know, deep level. And the only reason I don't say it is because it's socially awkward. Mm-hmm. Then I could argue that, you know, then I could, then, then, then I could argue that like, 
that the fact that I'm not saying it is not an expression of a truer self. And then when I drink and then I do say it, then you're seeing my true self. But on the other hand, on the other hand, one could argue that the inhibitions are coming from a deeper place because those inhibitions are coming from some deep convictions. And because just the alcohol just messes up the inhibition mechanism, it's not that, it's not that when I'm drunk, I have no problem. I, 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 it's not that I'm drunk, I, I, I'm okay saying it. It's that, that I'm, the fact that I'm not okay saying it, I can't seem to control that. It's kind of like a... And it's not just that it's the inhibition mechanism that's being altered. It's also your cognitive abilities. Right, but I'm just pointing out one, one thing. So it becomes very... So if you would take this principle and you start breaking it up and making it, treating it more rigorously, which I don't want to do here too much, you can start saying that, that it actually was very hard to figure out what's true and what's not true because... Even when you see something inconsistent, the question is, is the inconsistency a reflection of it or a reflection of other factors? You're saying that in any case, you just don't know which is the more real version. Right. So again, we all have a bias that the good, for, the good in us is the true. Okay? We also tend to have that bias of those we care about. I feel like for some reason, though, except when it comes to alcohol. Like, yes, I think when people... People yeah. will say like, oh, I was I was cranky, I was tired, I was hungry, yeah. I was irritated. But then when people say like, oh, I was drunk, they say that to me to say like, why they said something real rather than. That could that be. Uh, so so I would say yeah. it depends depends a lot on like I said it depends a lot on how you on how you understand what alcohol what alcohol messes up and how you understand that relating to the larger truer self. Yeah, those all of those things come into it. Okay. Yes. A drunk driver, we still say that they're a dr- they killed someone. Like we don't like we even we can say like they're a good person, but like they killed someone because they were drinking. Like we don't say like oh, sorry, I was drunk. I wouldn't have done that if I was sober. So I I'm not right. responsible. All right. There's another issue of responsibility which I don't want to get into um, because responsibility gets into issues of free will and where we get what, what what's the base of responsibility. But so for instance. Um, when, 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 when it, one of the things that makes it very hard to know somebody or even to know ourselves is that if there's an idea there is a true self, this is who I am intrinsically, or the things about me that cannot change so long as I am who I am, sometimes those things appear to be changing, not because they're actually changing, but because circumstances are making it harder, easier for me to experience them. Yes? Um, could you not say that when someone's saying, like, I'm happy and that's the truth, in that time, even though it is changing, that like emotion of being happy is the truth, because it's... Yeah. So, so Chassidus would say, and I, I would think the word is, joy is probably better here, but we're not gonna get into those semantics, that there is a state of joy which is actually intrinsic to each person. Um, and whether you feel joy or not is a, is, a, is a separate thing. So when you're feeling the joy, that's true because you're feeling something that, that is actually the case about yourself all the time, that, that is intrinsically who you are. Um, an analogy with that would be the sun. The sun is bright, yes? If, if it's dark outside, is that because the sun stopped being bright? No. No, it's because the sun is on the other side of the earth. So you are joyous. If you don't feel joyous, then that just means... It's not shining through. There's some, you are not shining through in your own life. Okay, now... That's not an argument for why that's the case, but that is a way of construing it, that, that all joy you feel is true because you are, you are joyous. And when you're not feeling joyous, it's not because the joy isn't there, but because the joy isn't shining through. So then you would say that it's not, like someone who feels sad is not going to be, ever, it's never, it's never So you would say they're never truly sad. Because you can never be. Right.
Which is not saying that they're lying when they say, I feel sad. When they're happy, it's just that they're sad. You could, which is why I'm saying it, which is why I'm saying when you start making empirical arguments for this, it's impossible to argue one way or the other. This is one of the reasons why the modern world kind of abandoned this notion of truth, because if you want to root everything in something that you can cross verify with other people, it becomes very hard. Because it could be that the true thing appears the most is actually the thing that appears most inconsistent because there's so much other stuff going on around it. Right. Yeah. Like what is an example of that? What's an example of that? Like yo estoy feliz. No, she was asking me what I was. So, uh, so, uh, so an ex- an exam an an example of that. Um, an example of that is that a Jew has a sense of the truth of the Torah. In other words. This idea, this idea of is that is that a true aspect of every Jewish person is that they sense the truth in the Torah. In other words, an intrinsic part of every single Jew is a is an, is a almost like a sensory experience, kind of like you can like you you sense your own body, like you, you or or you 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 sense time or you sense that you're upright. Those kind of intr- internal senses. That intrinsic part of every Jew is a is an awareness or a sensitivity to the fact. To, to the to the truth of the Torah, that the, the, the Torah is is godly. The Torah is God's wisdom. Now, here's the thing: is it the case that if you survey Jews, you will find that that is the overwhelming majority of most of the Jews most of the time would describe themselves as having this kind of a sensitivity? No. But so is the que- now. But the, is the question is because that that's, that awareness is not present, or is that awareness being covered over? So I want to give you two ways of thinking. So, for instance. Let's let's take two psychological or two two things that have to do with human human psychology. Okay, one is the ability to speak a particular language. If you cannot speak French, is that because your innate French speaking ability is being covered over, or it hasn't been developed? Not developed. Okay, right. What? I mean, it's interesting because like infants have the ability to produce all phonemes of all languages, not necessarily to produce at will, but like they can distinguish them at like very, very early ages. It's fascinating. And then somewhere around nine months, they stop being able to distinguish phonemes in languages other than the ones that they've been exposed to. So there is something that we lose. Within the first right, but I'm speaking more, I'm not speaking about in terms of the language as a linguistic structure, as the, you know, the, how the grammar and things like that works, right? You're not intrinsically, you not intrinsically have a knowledge of French grammar that you then... No, it's just interesting because like, if you take the view that everyone is born with an intrinsic ability to grasp language... What's that? That's what I want to get to. Okay. On the other hand, if you see an adult who cannot grasp language at all, what do we conclude? Why? Oh, we, we immediately... What went wrong? Something happened. Something, something is not as it should be. Right? Sometimes. Sometimes. Wait, give me a case where a person cannot cannot comprehend any language as an adult, and we're like, oh yeah, that's just that's just normal. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, language with general lingu- like linguistic structures. I don't. We'll include sign language in this. Okay. When was the last time you encountered someone who's in their thirties, heard of someone in their thirties who has the zero ability to process any language at all? Like, yeah, that's normal. 
They just, they just never learned it. No, that that right because, right? Like if if that, you you heard of such like okay, what happened? What you know is it is it is it a, is it a genetic defect? Is it like were they raised feral? Like something happened? And by the way, this does happen. Like. Right, so some of our psychological views, we, we have this sense that they're intrinsic and you know, sometimes things happen that don't allow them to be manifest. And some of them we say, no, these are things that are constructed and if you don't go through the process of construction, you won't have it. If you never learn French, you just won't know French. And if you wanna learn French, you know, you're gonna have to learn it. And if you're, sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder depending on all sorts of factors. But then there are certain things that are not like that. And we can, we can make a list of things. Um, most of us have this view of empathy, right? If somebody exp- experiences zero empathy, we don't think, oh, there's just, you know, it's just, you know, some people, some people learn empathy and some people don't. Some people speak French and some people don't. We, we don't think of empathy in French in that kind of same way. How do we tend to think of empathy? Like something that someone should have. Right, right. And if they don't have it, then like what happened to like suppress it, distort it, corrupt it? And if somehow we could figure that out, we could undo that process and then the innate natural empathy of the person would rise to the surface. Right? Now, again, I'm not arguing that these are in fact the case. I'm just saying that our minds, we do categorize qualities of, 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 of the soul or the mind or the psyche, if you will, in these two different ways. So now the question is, is a sensitivity to the godly truth of the Torah, the, the intrinsic um, the the fact that the Torah the, the the fact that God has imbued his 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 wisdom and his truth into these letters and into these ideas and into these procedures and into these institutions is that something is that something that a that we have an innate sensitivity to, or is it something that we have to learn to pr- learn and develop an ability to perceive, and so. The Hasidic view on this is that a Jew has an innate sensitivity to it. Now, having an innate sensitivity to something doesn't mean you experience it, right? Because other things can happen. Going back to, again, like what I said about joy is that the Hasidic view is that we are all innately joyous. So which means if you're not joyous, something is wrong because the inner joy is just not shining through. So if a person is in doubt over the, the divine wisdom in the Torah, how would Hasidus view that? that the person lacks a belief or lacks a conviction? No, we would view it as that that belief or conviction, whatever you want to call it, is present but not shining through. It's not manifest. And then the question is, okay, what's well, not shining through. What is not allowing it to shine through? So rather than dealing with the belief, you deal with what's obstructing the belief. Yes? Well, can't it also be like a combination of nature and nurture? <sighs> what do you mean? Like you have this innate part of you, but if you nur- if you don't nurture it, then it won't. Like it has both of the aspects together. So, so there's if we want to get more technical, which I don't know if I want to do, but if you want to get more technical, this actually says that there's there's two that this sensitivity actually has two, two, two kinds to it. There's a, there's a kind of sensitivity that is um, kind of like, if you want to use an example, like language, which is an intrinsic ability of all people, but you, you aren't born knowing a language and you do need to um, develop that intrinsic sensitivity to language to actually become a language speaker or understand a language. 
And so there is the idea that a Jew has this intrinsic sensitivity. But if you deprive a Jew of the, of, a, of the environment, then that sensitivity doesn't actually ever manifest and develop properly. Whereas if you, like if you take a regular healthy human being and you put them in a group of other human beings that speak a language, what automatically happens? So if you take a, 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 a Jew who has this godly sensitivity to the godliness of the Torah and you put him in a Torah environment, then he or she naturally picks up the godliness of the Torah around them. But if you deprive them of that, then they don't. And much like language, it's easier to develop younger and harder to develop older. But, but the, the innate sensitivity to language is something intrinsic. There is that kind of a thing. There is something else which is more like... Um, Akin, which is more like um, the, the, the valuing of life example, where, where you don't need to develop valuing of life. Everybody just values their life. Even people that, that again, are really, their lives are really not what they want to be. The fact that that itself bothers them is because their lives matter to them. And that's not something that develops or grows that's always there. Um, and so you have actually both of these aspects. Um, but... The question is, how, how much do they shine through? And in the first one, also, how sophisticated it is? How developed is it? Um, but what this means is that instead of directly trying to look for why, how can I have a personal relationship with the divinity, um, with the, the, the divine truth embedded in, in the Torah as, it, as is preserved by these institutions, the, que- the, the, the question is now reversed, which is, why am I not experiencing the personal connection that I already have? And that shift of question changes how you approach things. It changes, it changes a lot of things because it, it, it turns the question from why, what can I do to create something that isn't there to what can I do to reveal something that already is there? Now, This, th- what this means is that a person who is, the way Chassis the way would put this, is that a Jew who's, who is being true to themselves, see how the word true there is different than just, it is f- factual, right? That's the other use of it. A person who's being true to themselves, meaning they're allowing their intrinsic self to shine forth, doesn't have the question of how do I know this is true? The question of how do I know this is true comes from a kind of self-alienation, that I'm not experiencing myself for what I truly am. And so now the question of how do I know the Torah is true, all of a sudden it gets shifted is how can I be more true to myself? Which does a few things. It knocks a few things off the table that are no longer helpful or useful. Um, and it raises a whole new series of things, which I want to I mention a few of those. I see there's some questions here. So yeah, we'll go from the back to the front. Or front to back, whatever. Yeah. Yes. Um, when you were talking about your the hand thing in like a way earlier class about if I cut off your hand, is it still your hand? You were saying that like when you talk to your kids, they don't they know it's their hand, but like mm-hmm. it's still an interesting thought experiment. How do you know it's your hand? Like is so is there no place for a Jew to say like how do I know 
that this is true, meaning like certainly we all know that our hand is our hands are our hands, but it's still an interesting thing to like think about at some point in your life, like how do I know this is my hand? It 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 is, but the problem is is that if you reverse the if you, if, if if you do these in the wrong order, you create problems. In other words, if you if you have the sense that of course this is my hand, but now there's an interesting question, which is, which is how do I, how do I con, um, conceptualize that kind of knowledge and put it in relationship with the other kinds of knowledge that I have? That's fine. That's a very that's the whole point of those kinds of thoughts experiments. But if a person starts the premise like I'm not sure if my hand is my hand. <laughs> Okay. Right, and that's what I'm getting at is if you say, of course the Torah is true, and I and I know that in a 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 very absolute way that comes from an intrinsic part of myself. Now the question is, how do I conceptualize that kind of knowing in a place in relationship with other kinds of knowing, and and live live a life that brings all those things together in an integrated way? That's very important. But that's a secondary step. You can't do, if, if you're, that, that's starting off from a certain premise, but that's that first place that I want to get to, that we don't always always feel that part. Okay. Moving down the row, there are other questions? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really, you had a question. I'm shocked. <laughs> so I had asked the initial clarification question because you said something like, sometimes the most intrinsically true thing about someone is what presents the most inconsistently. So can you give an example? Like I understand that all Jews are like. Can you give an example? I don't know what that was. You whispered and made hand motions. It seemed very spiritual. Like yeah, okay. So not all Jews are like that, and that was the example. But can you give an example? Can you give an example either of non-Jews or like a different thing for for a Jewish person? Yes, I'll I'll give I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Um, but <laughs> you might disagree with my example. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, people are people. People are people are are people are not intrinsically selfish. In other words, um, yeah, people are not intrinsically selfish. What? In general. Uh, have you have you have you ever seen two year olds? Oh yeah. I think they're not intrinsically selfish. They're short sighted, but that's different than selfish. I think that a lot of the selfishness that we have um, has a lot to do with with the kind of structures that we've created for our lives. For instance, most of us the way we grow up in societies where from a very young age we are given a message that we are an, we are a, we are a discrete individual. Um, we're given messages of how we have to take, be, you know, prioritize and take care of ourselves and be successful. Um, and we live in a society where we don't usually see how really dependent we are on other people for our very survival. And I think if you were to take people and put them in what is more a traditional mode of living, you will see that people tend to be not selfish, but rather something more like groupish. That they, in other words, no. In other words, in other words, that that the group that I am part of, whatever they need, that that's what my real concerns are. But I think that the way we, in in, in the past, say, few decades or so, have really changed how we interact with each other and how we raise our children, and that's created the sense that that we all really care about myself as this, which is I think just a kind of like covering over a deeper sense. We actually care about our 
network, our group. And when you, when you look in societies and you look at traditional ways of living or even in families where, that, where those kinds of influences are less, I think what comes out um, is a sense of you know, togetherness and sharing and not like universal, like I care about everybody, but the group. And even to the point that people will gladly give up and suffer for the benefit of their group. And I think that the fact that that sounds heroic or amazing, I think is just because that, that intrinsic part of us is, doesn't come out that much in the way we live our lives and the societies that we're in. But I, I, think it's probably, I think it's quite intrinsic and probably a more fundamental part of human beings, which is why, and my, my argument for this, is an argument for it, is that when people live very autonomous lives, being very selfish, they tend to feel very unfulfilled. When people tend to live very groupish lives, they feel extremely fulfilled which seems to me to indicate that that is a more intrinsic or authentic expression of the human being. But where's the inconsistency? Because you see that. You don't see most, because most of the times we're living our lives. Like most of the times you walk down the street, what are you thinking about? The welfare of your group, of your family, of your community, what you're needed for amongst them, or what would be convenient for you, what would allow you to achieve your personal goals. So I'd say that groupish sense is something that comes out very inconsistently. It's, it, it's infrequent in m- most modern societies, but I think that that doesn't indicate that it's not a, a, the truer part of ourselves. I think, it's more, I think it is more true part of ourselves. But you can, like, you can come up with all sorts of different things that, that you know, people can debate about this, and you ask my opinion. So that's one thing that's my opinion. But if I see somebody who's living life um, thinking about how they can succeed in their personal goals and get ahead, my gut instinct is what's wrong with them? Like, like not on a religious level, just like at a human level. Like, like what, what's going on? Like, why don't they feel a sense of belonging and what other people need from them? And, who, who, you know, that kind of being part of a larger network that, that, that counts on them for something. Why isn't that present? It's like seeing a person who can't speak or can't hear. Like, what happened? So that's, but, but the funny thing is, like, most of us are like that a lot of the time. So it's pretty inconsistent. But anyway, um, that's one example. Yes? So if someone has this covering up of like Torah being God's wisdom and it's, they don't feel the like, innateness within them, you're saying that the way to feel that is by keeping yourself in that environment? No, I didn't speak about the way. I just said that what that means, the way they said that changes, certain things are no longer going to, it changes the way you deal with it. How it changes, I didn't get to yet. Okay. So there are a few things. There is a whole, there is a whole um, body of literature, usually more, more or less found in, in, in the medieval philosophers about arguments for the authenticity of Judaism, that Judaism is the one true authentic religion. Now, one of the things that you'll see that if you read those, those books and you read them from their introductions, they all have something in common. Is that who are they addressed to? Someone who believes or someone who doesn't believe? Someone, who's, someone who already feels that Judaism is the one true religion or someone who doesn't feel that it's the one true religion? Does. We're all addressed to someone who does. In other words, these, these books are all written for someone who's like, you have this sense but I don't know how to put this sense in, in, in relation to the other kinds of knowledge that I have, the other kinds of the other things that are going on. 
What happens if a person really just isn't sure? They don't feel like, I don't know, maybe Judaism is true, maybe it's not true. Is a convincing argument going to help? So th- this view that, 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 that awareness of the divine truth in a personal level ha- is something that has to be intrinsic in a person, would say like this. If you've been convinced by an argument, then what is the thing that you actually have direct relationship? What is the thing that you're really connected to? The argument. And what's the soul of the argument? Not its conclusion, but its logical integrity. So what are you really having a devout relationship with? What are you really personally attached to? Logic. And so you're not really connecting to God. You're not really connecting to Torah. You're connecting to the, how logic and reason are in just intrinsically compelling, which is a very human thing. No, it's, it's, it's not bad. It just doesn't get you. If your issue is I want to have this personal sense of the truth of the Torah, you don't have that. In other words, in other words, it, you, you've replaced the institution, which is external to you, with how logic is compelling, but at the end of the day, you're not having a direct sense. Okay? And that would be like, I'll give you an analogy for this. Some people are colorblind. How do colorblind people drive? It's a problem. There's red lights, green lights. How do they know? Yeah, the red light is always on the top, and the green light is always on the bottom, right? But here's the thing. Do they know that the green light is on the bottom? Why not? Because they can't see, for them, they don't, they, they don't experience the redness of the red light versus the greenness of the green light. Mm-hmm. They have some way of, of externally coming to the conclusion that this is what is known as a red light, this is what's known as a green light. So if the problem is that religion really needs to be personal, that I need to have my own sense of the truth of the w- divine wisdom of the Torah, if I outsource that verification process to some institutions, it's not personal, right? Mm-hmm. In a subtler way, but, but just as true, if I outsource that to how I find logic compelling, mm-hmm. I still don't have a sense of the divine wisdom of the Torah. What do I have a sense? That the thing that's most logically compelling, the thing that's most coherent, the most thing that's most plausible is that this is the case. But I still don't have a sense of it. So I'm like the colorblind person. I, I, I can tell you this is the red light and that's the green light, mm-hmm. but I don't for myself experience the redness of the, the greenness of the green. And so I didn't solve the original problem. Now, does that mean that those ideas that can argue and justify are, are bad ideas? They're not the bad ideas. They just don't achieve that end. And so what this means is instead of, if, if the issue is that this kind of intrinsic sensitivity is something a person doesn't feel, looking for external ways of verifying it and doesn't solve the problem. It's like, if, going back to the colorblind example, if I can't tell the difference between red and green, and that's the thing that bothers me, not I can't drive, not I have like inhibitions because the world assumes that I can tell the difference between red and green, but I want to be able to appreciate the difference between red and green, there's only one solution, which is fix my sight. Until my sight is fixed, I will forever not be able to tell the difference between red and green. I can work around that when it comes to driving, by asking society to put all the red lights on top and all the green lights on the bottom. I can work around that by making sure that, you know, um, you know, paint by numbers, you know, has like if that has the little the names of the the, the names of the, the the paint or the names of the markers written on them, so I can read this is red, this is green, then I can fill it out. But what I'm doing is as I'm circumventing the problem, not actually addressing the problem. And that's why all these books, they always say, we're writing a book to a devout believing Jew who is struggling to put this sense into a broader context. Mm 
But what if I don't have that sense to begin with? And so Hasidic's teaching is that if you don't have the sense to begin with, it's not that you don't have that sense, it's that that sense is being obstructed. And so the question is, what is obstructing it? What is not allowing me to, have a, to, have, to, to shine through? Um, and that shifts the burden of proof. That shifts the emphasis. Okay? Um, and what I want to do tomorrow is talk about some of the ways in which, um, from the Hasidic point of view, that's actually meant, meant to be addressed. So if you take this point of view, the idea of arguments why Judaism is true, they're not bad or evil or negative things. They just don't actually address the problem. Okay? They're, 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 they can actually be equated to, another, to something else. If I believe that Judaism is true because there was a rabbi who's very charismatic told me that it's true, would we say that that's a personal connection to Judaism? But I no, am. No. No. What if that charismatic rabbi is my own logical reasoning? It's the same thing. I still don't have a direct sense of it. Okay? Um, and I will just end. There was a Jewish, a non-Jewish philosopher who said, referring to math, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that when you look at a right triangle, you know, triangle with a right angle, you can see that the hypotenuse was longer than the other two sides. You don't need a proof for that. You don't need logic. You can see it, right? It's, it's your own experience. But, but, but how do you calculate those sides, right? So the, the hypotenuse a squared, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, you remember that from high school? Mm-hmm. How do you know that that's true? Someone told you. Some people just believe because someone told you. Some people work through, some people work through the logical proof. But, but he said true mathematical knowledge is when you can see that the way you can see that the hypotenuse is longer. If you need the proof, you need to work through the steps of the proof. You don't really see it as true. You don't really get it. When you're working, when you need, when you need this other thing, you're compensating. I can see that this line is longer than those lines, but I need to work through a, 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 I need to work through a proof to reach a conclusion. That means the conclusion is not really something I directly sense. And so, with all these different philosophical books, um, the Guide for the Perplexed, um, the Kuzari, all these books. And each in their own language, they all have this sense that at the end of the day, Jude, you know, connection with God, if it's going to be personal, has to be direct. You have to have a sense of the divinity. And if you're going to, if, if, if you're going to, if you're going to circumvent that, but relying on other things to stand to, to, to kind of bolster that, then you don't really have that personal connection. And so all these books say, I'm writing for someone who has that sense, but they need to know how to how to process that, how to place it, how to put it into a, a context and work with it. But if you don't have that sense at all, that's a different problem altogether. Yeah? Can't, can't logic be a barrier between that, like that, between um, accessing that sensitivity? Could it be a barrier? Yeah. It could and, be. And like, with the Rambam, like, the Rambam gives so the Rambam in the Guide for the Perplexed he says something right at the beginning in his introduction he says that what I'm writing you're not going to really get mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing because the only way to get it is to work through what I'm saying and then when you get it it will be like a flash of lightning that will dissipate that you, in other words you will have a sense of the truth of the godliness and so it's much more like he's trying to manipulate your rational mind to kind of trigger 
this kind of quasi-prophetic revelation. That's actually how he describes it. And he says, in fact, Moshe is just like a person who has an ongoing flash of lightning. So when you read the introduction and now puts everything else he says into slightly different light, he's not making arguments to convince the skeptic. He's, he's providing reflection exercises to achieve some sort of um, enlightenment, first-hand enlightenment. And, and so the question is, okay, but what if I'm skeptical about the whole project to begin with? And I was like, well, then, then, then I, I'm not, that's not writing the book for you. In fact, there's one place in the book where he, where he says, where he's talking about different views of divine providence. And he says, and then there are people who doubt divine providence altogether, but I'm not addressing them because that's just foolish and like, we're not gonna talk about that, and moves on. Like, it's very interesting. Like, the, the idea of like straightforward, like let me convince the skeptic was something that these media people did. Now it's become more popular in the modern secular age, um, but it has this problem that you're, a, a convincing argument that something is true doesn't, isn't the same thing as an experience with that thing. That is an interesting debate. Something we're going to touch on tomorrow. Are we going to have a word? Yeah. Uh, nope. I'll give you the word tomorrow. Can I ask you a quick question?